And I have the pleasure, the joy to, to bring you the word of God this morning. You may have saw me somewhere in a Christmas suit. Uh, if you want to know what that's about, you'll have to come to Lord's Supper service tonight. Um, but yeah, but it, much more important than anything about me is uh, to come to the word of God. And so I'm excited for that today. You know, there's a common pursuit that most of us have, that most humanity has, um, and it's something we crave, it's something we talk about, it's even something the irreligious, the non-Christian community talks about a lot. And it's the reality of peace. The reality of peace. And as I was preparing a sermon and thinking about the last maybe three to five years, Peace might be the last word I would describe sort of what's been happening in our country or some of our experiences. It wasn't very peaceful in how to deal with COVID-19. It hasn't been very peaceful between the political parties. Uh, It has not been peaceful, I would say, sometimes amongst households in dealing with some of those issues. Um, It hasn't exactly been peaceful between different ethnicities. And it certainly is not peaceful now that we know there's a war happening between two countries, Ukraine and Russia. And so it's been a very unpeaceful time. And when it comes to your personal life, it may be no different than some of the events happening around us. You may have little peace about your financial stability. You may have little peace about your children's future, and you're looking at the world's be- what it's becoming, and you're worried, you're concerned. You may not have peace about your role in the church or in a family or amongst friends, but if you're going to fulfill those roles, where you fit, what you should be doing. Maybe you have a little peace about your current trials and whatever you're suffering, whatever you're going through is very difficult. You may not even have peace about what tomorrow will bring you, and you're worried about tomorrow. And worst of all, there may be some of you who don't have any sense of peace with the God of the universe, and you feel restless. And in the midst of that lack of peace, here we are, 2022, and it's Christmas time. It's the time when we think, when we dwell, when we remember the man who came, the one who was born, who was called the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9-6. That Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace peace. And while Jesus certainly is the Prince of Peace, I would like to submit to you a rather shocking statement. And it's something Jesus himself said, and this is what he said. He said he did not come to bring peace. Jesus did not come to the earth to bring peace. He says it himself in Matthew 10, 34. He says, When he's talking to the crowds and his disciples, do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And the sword was the sword of truth. And Jesus knew that the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, that truth would divide people. And he goes on in that teaching, that's why even households, people who are siblings, parents and kids, they'll be divided Because some will be believers and some won't. And so Jesus knew by the nature of bringing the truth that it would be like a sword that would cut through and make division in places. 
So we ask ourselves, how is, how is this guy, how is Jesus called the prince of peace when he himself says, I didn't even come to bring peace? And the reason is, is because yes, Jesus did not come to bring peace, but he did come to make peace. And there's a difference between those things. Jesus did not come to bring peace, but he came to make peace. And that's what the scriptures tell us. When it comes to bringing peace, that can cost relatively little. The idea is there's already peace somewhere and I'm just bringing it with me. But when you make peace, something uh, costs to happen. Something costed or something, a price was paid, I should say, in order to bring about that peace, in order to make peace. And so Jesus was not a peace bringer. He was a peace maker. And that's what the scriptures tell us, Colossians 1, 19 through 20. For in him, Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. How is he doing that? Making peace by the blood of his cross. Peace was made. How? Through the precious blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And the next logical question, right, was, well, with who? With who has Christ made peace? Because those events I described, you think about human history, it doesn't really seem that there's much peace. And maybe even in your own life, even if you're a Christian, you feel like, I don't experience that much peace. And again, we just turn to the scriptures to see, with whom did Christ make peace? Romans 5.1. This is what it says. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with who? With God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ came. Christ was born to make peace between you and God. He was born to make peace between you and God. Jesus was born to die. Christmas happened so that Easter could and that God can reconcile us to himself. And so God made peace by eradicating the grounds by which he was wrathful towards us. He was angry towards us as rebellious sinners and he did it at great, the greatest cost to himself through his son, Jesus Christ. And so if you're someone who desires the experience of peace. If you desire peace, here's my proposal. Here's my main point for today. It's this. Your greatest, foremost need for peace, your greatest need for peace is with God. And it is only when you have peace with God through Christ that you will have true peace in every area of your life. And that's something I hope to prove to you today through the scriptures. So if you're somebody who likes outlines, we're going to look at three realities of peace through the lens of the scriptures. First is your desperate need of peace. Your desperate need of peace. Second is your only hope for peace. There's only one hope you have for genuine, real peace. Third is your gracious calling to peace. And the scriptures teach all of these. 
So let's start with your desperate need of peace. And even as I'm talking about peace, I wonder what comes to your mind as you think about peace. Even as I use those words, your desperate need of peace. And if you're like me, you sort of think of that subjective experience. I want to feel peace. I want to have a sense of inner peace. And I know what that's like. I have three children under three. Recently, we took these lovely photos with uh, Mackenzie Cantu, and they're great. They're wonderful. They'll be on our Christmas cards. But these photos, they're a lie. They're just a complete and utter lie. Anyone with young children, this has never happened in the morning of history, except when a professional photographer comes to your house. And so I get it. The experience of peace in our household is not always there. When you got screaming kids, kids you're trying to... You're trying to teach them self-control and to deal with their sin and repentance and all of these things. Professional photographers, professional liars, they're great at it. So <laughs> that's their profession, make you look better than you are. But it's true. And so often we think of sort of that subjective experience. However, when it comes to the scriptures, it's actually really rare when the Bible talks about peace, that it's talking about that experience of peace. And more often, what it's talking to is a reality of peace outside of you. A peace that is real, that is genuine, regardless of how you may feel about it or how you may experience it. And so we long for that experience of peace, but the Bible talks about peace in a very different way, a very objective way. And on top of that, when it comes to peace as well, the Bible just doesn't talk about peace as sort of this idea of, you know, even with my kids, you think peace in the household, that just means everyone's taking a nap and this is wonderful. There's no strife, nothing's happening. But the reality of biblical peace is it's actually this idea of wholeness, of reconciliation, of completeness, of vitality and joy when you have peace with someone else. And that's the reality of the peace, that's the Reality of peace that the Bible speaks to most often. And so the scriptures tell us there's really only two kinds of people in the world. There are those that have peace with God and those who do not have peace with God. Those who are at war with God, actually. And so if you're somebody who has no sense of peace, it may be for a good reason. It may be because the objective reality between you and God is that there is no peace because you're not in Christ. And you also may be somebody who is a Christian, who is in Christ, but you have no experience of that peace personally, even though it's objectively true that if you're in Christ, there's no more war between you and God. And I would submit to you there, and we'll get to this a little bit later, that your struggle for peace there is you don't remember the peace that you have with God that is real. And so this is what the scriptures tell us. Don't take my word for it. James 4.4 4 says this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? It's hatred with God. It's strife with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself what? An enemy of God. Can't be friends with the world and friends with God in the true meaning of friendship. A friend of God and an enemy of the world. Or the other way around. 
Those are the two choices. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Paul here is talking to the Ephesians. He's talking about their former life before they became Christians. He says, this is what you were like, Ephesians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, which is a name for the devil. You were following Satan's schemes. That's what you were doing. Among whom we all once lived in what? The passions of our flesh. Not living in the spirit. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature what? Children of God? No, you were children of wrath. God was righteously angry with you and your sin. And you were a child of wrath. And it was just like the rest of mankind who didn't know Christ. And finally, Romans 10 makes it very clear. It starts with, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. We were reconciled to God when? When we were just neutral with God? When God was a little disappointed with us? No, we were enemies with God. And so this is something we have to get right because it's what the scriptures teach. That if we're not in Christ, we are rebels. We are enemies against God. In the Christian life, it really could be summed up as this. I'm a person who has peace with God. I have peace with God and I know that because of what Jesus Christ has done. And to not be a Christian is to live a life that's at war with God. I don't have peace with God. And even as Christians, though, I think we can muddle this, this truth sometimes. One of the most popular things I've heard, I've honestly probably said it at some point in my life. I don't say it anymore. If you said it, don't go like beating yourself up or anything after this too much. But something we say that I think is very confusing is we say when it comes to God, you know, God just loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. And it's just, it's not in the Bible that that's true. And even philosophically, I've always asked myself, how does that make sense? Is not what we do, what we say, what our desires are, that defines who we are as a person. Those are uh, not separable. They can't be ripped apart from who I am as a person. So I thought of an illustration, consider it this way. We're all familiar with James 2, 17 and 18. We'll, we'll throw it on there if you're not so you can see it. But this is what the verse says. It says, so also faith by itself, it does, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. In sort of a short summary, what is James saying? Saying the genuineness of your faith in Christ is evidenced by the things that you do. It's not that your faith saves you, but if you want to know, is your faith real, which does save you, look at your works. Look at what your life produces. Well, the opposite is true. If you want to know if you're a sinner, if you want to know if you're a rebel, if you want to know if you're still in the flesh, look at the type of works your life produces, what you do. That's why Jesus himself said, look, you'll know false teachers by what? By their fruits. 
what their life produces. You'll know yourself, man knows what comes out of our heart by what we say. You always say what you mean. That's what Jesus meant by we always speak from the heart. That what comes out of our mouth comes from our heart. And so the scriptures prove to us that we are sinners. We sin because we are sinners. I think that's clearly what Paul was getting at with the Galatians when he was comparing the flesh with the spirit. Look at what Galatians 5, 19 through 21 says. It says what? Now the works of the flesh are evident. They're obvious. If you're in the flesh, these are the type of practices that are in your life that dominate you. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And Paul warns them, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those in the flesh are in rebellion against God. They have hatred towards God. They're at war with God. And so your biggest problem is not even starting with your experience of peace, but whether the objective reality, do you actually have peace with God, regardless of how you feel? Are you in Christ, and do you have that peace, or are you still at war with God? And you see, it's not just your sin against God that is offensive to God. It's you. You as a person are a sinner. It's not that just you offended him. You are an offender. God doesn't just condemn sins. He condemns sinners. These are some hard verses that I'm going to bring up. But this is what the scripture teach. The, the scripture teach about God. And how he feels towards sinners who are unrepentant. It says this in Psalm 5.5. 5, the boastful as people shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You don't just hate what they do. You hate the evildoer. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful acts of a man. No, the, blood, the bloodthirsty and deceitful man he hates. Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And then when we flip over even to Revelation, uh, chapter 20, verse 15, what does it say when it's talking about the resurrection of the dead and the final judgment? If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's not just sins that are condemned to hell. It's people that are being condemned to hell. I recently had some Mormon missionaries, some LDS missionaries come to my home. Hannah was leaving with the baby. I had the other two kids she goes, I don't have time to talk to you, but that guy at the end of the hall will. <laughs> Poor guys didn't know what they were getting into. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know, Pastor Tim and I have had a long, faithful ministry reaching to the LDS community. I'm sometimes I'm more familiar with the, than their religion than the missionaries are. 
So these four guys, they come and we talk for a couple hours, but somewhere towards the beginning, I just ask them because I've had enough of these conversations. I, I know what to ask. And I just ask them, what do you think mankind's greatest need is? What do you think that is? And I, I kind of knew what their reply was going to be. And essentially, it was happiness. God wants us to be happy. He wants you to be happy. And that's why he sent Jesus Christ. And man, the look on their faces as I told them, no, that is not what the Bible teaches. Man's greatest need is to be transformed from a rebellious sinner who has the wrath of God on him into a righteous son and daughter of, Jesus, of God the Father. That's man's greatest need, that you need to be saved from your sin. But not only that, that you need to be saved from the wrath of God. That's what the gospel tells us. That's what you need saving from. It's the gracious mercy of God upon us as rebellious sinners. And so you desperately need that peace if you don't have it. Because regardless of how you may feel, if you haven't repented and believe on Christ, if you're not united with Christ, there is no peace between you and God right now. The wrath of God abides on you. It remains on you. Many people are familiar with John 3.16, but they don't read the next couple verses. That whoever has not believed in the Son is what? Is condemned already because they haven't believed in the only one whom God has sent. And so God's judgment is presently upon them. And so you're desperately in need of that peace. We are desperately in need of that peace. Because otherwise, God in his righteousness, in his goodness, in his wrath, as he burns towards sin, he will condemn it. And he will condemn us if we are at war with him. And it will be hell for all of eternity. And now, if you're here, you're thinking it's Christmas time. You're like, this is not what I was expecting to hear from the Christmas message. I thought we were all joy and it's great. But there is hope, and it's the greatest news you could receive. And really, you will only understand that hope. You will only grasp onto that hope if you understand that bad news. And so the gospel always begins with the bad news of sin, with the bad news of us being sinners, rebellious against God. And so that was the bad news, but here's the good news. Your only hope. There's hope for peace with God. And the fact that he is your hope. Jesus Christ is your only hope. Jesus Christ is the only one who takes rebellious sinners and gives them a pardon. Because he is the very God, the very king whom we have sinned against. He's the only one who can. And the gospel is even better than that. Because you know, honestly, there's other religions who offer forgiveness from God. What's unique about Christianity? What's unique about the gospel? It's not that God just offers a pardon for your sins. The king also offers you a seat at his table as his own son or daughter. He says, I will clothe you in the very righteousness of my perfect son who has never sinned, never rebelled, and always done what I have asked. And you will enjoy all the riches of all the pleasure that he has secured on your behalf if you would only turn from a rebellion and turn towards me. That's the good news of the gospel. It's not that Christ just died for us. He lived for us. 
He lived the perfect life that we could not live in our place to secure the righteousness that we could not obtain on our own. He didn't just make us innocent before God. He made us righteous before God. And so people often ask, especially around the holidays time, they say, you know, Christians, they're just so exclusive. Why would you say that? It seems so narrow-minded. Jesus Christ is the only way into heaven. Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. And the answer is pretty simple. Jesus is the only one who solved the problem. Jesus is the only one who can solve the problem. And unless you get the problem right, then you won't get the solution right. Jesus is the only one who could deal with sin. Jesus is the one we sinned against. Jesus is the only one who could be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the only one who could represent us as our substitute. And so, yeah, it's narrow-minded because it's the only solution for our sins. Only Christ can pay and forgive our sins. And so it's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that God offers us the peace that we desperately need. But it gets even better than that. Because it's not only that Christ deals with the consequences of our rebellious acts. He goes right to its source. That when you become a Christian, there's a reason why John 3 uses the language of Jesus as being born again. You have a new nature that you were given. That before all you had was a sinful nature. And even the good things that came out that you did out of that sinful nature were tainted by sin. But when you're born again, you're given a new nature. A new nature made in the likeness of God. A nature that is in the spirit, no longer in the flesh. And he empowers you. He enables you to obey God faithfully. To actually please God with the right motivation, with the right thoughts, for the right reasons, doing the right thing. And so Jesus doesn't only deal with rebellious sinners and the consequences of their actions that we no longer have to suffer the penalty, but he actually transforms us into sons and daughters. He makes us spiritually alive. We read that passage from Ephesians 2, that we were once spiritually dead. And the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead on Easter morning is the same spirit that lives in you and made you alive to the things of God. And so Jesus Christ is the only appointed means by which God offers rebellious sinners a pardon. And he offers really in our place, to treat his son as an enemy on the cross so that you could be treated like his son should have been. That's what God offers in the gospel. And your only hope for peace with God is responding to the gospel in one way. See, the gospel isn't a suggestion. It's not only a message. It's a proclamation. It's a command to obey, to repent, and to believe. That's the only proper response to the gospel that results in salvation. That's clearly what Paul tells us in Romans 10, 9 and 10. And then in verse 13, he says this, look, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, 
And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And for those of you who are here who are Christians, this is something we have to get right in our theology. It's something we have to be precise about. Because honestly, sometimes I think we present the gospel, again, a bit muddled. And sometimes how it comes out is, hey, do you have a relative feeling in your life of dissatisfaction? Are you restless? Are you dissatisfied? Well, guess what? It's because you don't know God and Jesus came to give you a more satisfying life. And there's some aspect of truth of that. There is no one more satisfying than Christ. There is nothing objectively more or even subjectively having Christ as your friend, as your Savior, as your Lord. And so there's some aspect of truth to that, but that honestly isn't the gospel. The gospel is not so much concerned about your personal satisfaction as it is concerned with God's satisfaction with you in Christ. That's what the gospel is. Your biggest need is for God to be satisfied with you so that he doesn't have to satisfy his wrath by pouring it out upon you. And instead he offers to pour it out on his only son, Jesus Christ, so you don't have to take the brunt of his wrath. And so we're only justified through the life and death of Christ. We're only made right with God through what Christ has done. And so you have to ask yourself, do I have peace with God? Not do I feel if I have peace with God? Do you have it? And if you're in Christ, if you've repented and believed on Christ, you do. If you haven't repented and believed on Christ, you don't, regardless of how you may feel about your life. You're at war with God. And as Christians, that's the proclamation we have to make to people. That's what Paul says in in 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. We are ambassadors for Christ. And we implore you, be reconciled to God. We're ambassadors. We're in the world, a foreign nation. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And we're pleading with this nation. A war is coming. A war is coming and you're not going to win. And you guys are rebelling against the king. The king who gave you everything you enjoy, every good thing you enjoy in this life in the first place. You wouldn't be even alive if it were for him. And you're rebelling and you're warring against him. And when he comes, you will not win this war. And I'm pleading with you, be reconciled to him. Take the pardon. Be adopted into his family. Rid yourself of your sin in Christ. That he can make you his child and love you and pour his grace and love upon you. And that's the message we have to proclaim as Christians. That's why the church is here. That's the only reason Christ hasn't come back yet. Because there's more people to be saved. And God intends you to use you to do that. That the message would be proclaimed from your mouth. That people need to be reconciled to God and saved from the wrath of God. 
If you recall, we started this, I gave you guys sort of a, a proposition, uh, an idea I was trying to get across. And the first part of that, hopefully, has been clear. That your greatest need is with God. But what was the second part? The second part, it is only when you have peace with God, will you or can you have peace with God in every area, or peace in every area of your life. Whether it's with people, or your circumstances, or yourself, or whatever it may be. And so you may be even asking yourself, okay, Jordan, I'm a Christian. I have peace with God. Why is peace so elusive to me? Why does it seem so frustrating? And even maybe when you read some of the imperatives of what the scriptures ask of us, it's honestly frustrating for you. Some of them come to mind like this. You're instructed to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The peace of Christ is meant to be on the throne of your heart. You are told in Romans 12, 18, as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Christians and non-Christians alike, as much as it is up to you, live at peace with all men. You are commanded in Romans 14, 19, to pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding in the church. And then you are called to be a representative of the God of peace. And what we've been talking about, that's why God could be called the God of peace, because God is a peacemaker. And God is reconciling everything to himself through what Christ has done. But here's a great truth about your experience in pursuit of peace. If your pursuit of peace in your life does not begin with those object, objective grounds of being reconciled to God, you will never have peace. You will never have true peace. You will never experience that peace. So why don't I feel that if I'm a Christian, if it's a reality? I can really think of only one reason. You forget. You forget the gospel and you forget the peace that God has made with you. And so you fail to live it out. You fail to live out the way that God has treated you in your life. And so how does that translate actually? How does that translate? Okay, I got peace with God, but then what does that mean for my home or my relationships or my circumstances? Let me put it pretty ex explicitly. Because you have peace with God means you can be at peace with who you are in Christ. You're somebody who struggles with self-worth, with identity. If you are in Christ, you are loved by God. You are cherished by God. There's nothing that God loves more than his people. He paid the ultimate price to prove that. To love us. Now, I was mistaken, by the way. There is one thing. God loves his own glory more than us. But we benefit from that. Because peace with God means you can forgive the sins of others. Because you know how much God has forgiven you. The sins that are done in secret. The sins you did in your past. The sins you're doing now. 
And you know that God has forgiven you of all that, past, present, and future in Christ. And that gives you a well, a place to say, I can forgive others, even the people who have done horrendous things to me, because it will nowhere ever near come in comparison to the sin I have done against God and what I deserved for that sin. And I can learn to forgive someone else. Because peace with God means you can love your enemies. Because God loved you while you were an enemy. That's why Paul says in Romans what was so unique about Christ's death. It's not that Christ just died for decent people or good people. And Paul even says maybe every once in a while someone's willing to lay down their life for a pretty good person. But when is the story that the hero lays down his life for the villains in order to save them? That's what happened when Jesus died. He loved us as the villains, as the rebels, as the sinners, as enemies of God. And so we can learn to love our enemies. Because peace with God means you can preach a gospel of peace. And tell people that's what your greatest need is. You need peace with God. Because peace with God means you can live free with anxiety. Because you know that if God gave you his only son, how much more will he not give you all things? And you don't have to worry about what other people think about you. Because you know what God thinks about you. You don't have to worry about what tomorrow will bring because you know whose hands tomorrow is in. It's in the God you have peace with. Because peace with God means you know that your suffering is for glory and not for punishment. That what you're going through, that God doesn't punish his children. God doesn't punish those who he's at peace with. But he does allow suffering. He does bring suffering. And he does it for our good and his glory. Because peace with God means your trials are for your good. That you would become like Christ. That's what God is doing in every difficulty of your life. is trying to make you more like his perfect son, Jesus Christ. And lastly, because of peace with God, it means you have hope for a world to come of perfect peace. And no matter how frustrating, no matter how difficult this life is, you know there will come a time when everyone and every nation and everything will be at perfect peace as Christ reconciles all things to himself. And so we can't reverse it. We can't try to pursue personal peace when we don't know that we have peace with God. It always has to begin with peace with God. Otherwise, we just don't have the place. We don't have the heart to do these things without God working in us first and understanding that reality. It's Christmas time. And this is the time we think about the birth of Christ. And perhaps one of the most famous announcements from the angels, Luke 2.14, what do they say? They say, glory to God in the highest as Christ is born. And on earth, what? Peace. But then it specifies to whom? Among those with whom he is pleased. What's the implication there? God is not pleased with everybody. 
and the coming of Christ was not going to bring peace, peace to everybody. It's not peace to the world that the angels announced or that there would be peace, but peace to those in the world with whom God is pleased. For those whom God is not pleased, please, there would not be peace. There would be war. It's not often the way we talk about God, but it's the way Scripture talks about God. Exodus 15.3 tells us, The Lord, Yahweh, He's a man of war. The Lord is His name. Of the risen Christ, Revelation tells us, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So if you haven't repented, if you haven't believed on Christ, you're at war with God and you're not going to win. And I would plead with you, repent. Believe before it's too late. Take the opportunity to receive the pardon, to receive adoption into God's family. But that begs the question, well, with whom is God pleased? And again, the scriptures tell us, God is pleased with his son, Jesus Christ. At his baptism, that's exactly what the father declared. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. At his transfiguration, the voice comes and speaks to Jesus and Peter and John. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But here's a wonderful truth. If this doesn't make your heart scream with joy and with gratitude, I don't know what will. It's that if you are in Christ, if you are united to him by faith, God says to you, with you, I am pleased. With you, I am pleased, not because of anything that you have done, but because of what his son has done on your behalf. That God's love for you, that God's peace towards you is not even predicated on you. It's predicated on what Jesus has done for you. And what Jesus has done for you is fixed in history on the cross. And therefore, how God loves you and when he has peace with you, that will never change. Because what happened on the cross will never change. And even... When you're a Christian and you sin or you're caught in sin and you're repenting, God has loved you and set his affection upon you in Christ. And Christ pleads on your behalf. He intercedes for you. He says, Father, I've taken their place. I have, we have peace with them because of what I have done. And so you need to hear it, Christian. God is pleased with you because he is pleased with his son. Therefore, God has called you to a life of peace. You are at peace with God, and God has called you to make peace and to be at peace at every area in your life. Let's pray.
Father, we are grateful that you are a God who makes peace. And you made peace. And it cost you the greatest price, Lord. It cost you your son, your only son. And you treated your son like we should have been treated on that cross. You treated him like an enemy so that you could treat us as a friend, as a son, as a daughter. And we're so thankful for that. And we're so thankful for Christ who joyfully and willingly went to that cross, knowing the peace that he would secure between us and him, between us and the Father, Lord. And we pray that you help us to live out that peace as Christians. And I pray for the people here, Lord, if they don't know whether they have peace with you or not, that this could be the day. This could be the day they can repent and believe on Christ and know with certainty that they have peace with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.